So we are going to be in Acts 21, and it's a long section, it's a long reading, but we'll start in chapter 21, verse 37, and then we're going to go all the way through chapter 22, verse 21, okay? 21, 37 to 22, 21. So let's pick it up there in Acts chapter 21, verse 37. I'm breaking into the middle of a story. There is a a mob, an angry Jewish mob that are trying to kill Paul. (laughs) And Paul, the the commander of a nearby fortress, comes to Paul's rescue. And that's, we're breaking into the middle of the story. Okay, so verse 37. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the commander, the one who was rescuing him, May I say something to you? And he said, do you know Greek? Then you're not the Egyptian who some time ago stirred up a revolt and led 4,000 men and the Assyrians out into the wilderness. But Paul said, I'm a Jew of Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no insignificant city. And I beg you, allow me to speak to the people. When he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the stairs, motioned to the people with his hand. And when there was a great hush, He spoke to them in the Hebrew dialect, saying, Brethren and fathers, hear my defense, which I now offer to you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew dialect, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated under Gamaliel, strictly according to the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, just as you all are today. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and putting both men and women into prisons, as also the high priest and all the council of the elders can testify. From them I also received letters to the brethren, and started off for Damascus in order to bring even those who were there to Jerusalem as prisoners to be punished. But it happened that as I was on my way, approaching Damascus about noontime, a very bright light suddenly flashed from heaven all around me. And I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus, the Nazarene, whom you are persecuting. And those who were with me saw the light, to be sure, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, get up and go into Damascus, and there you will be told of all that has been appointed for you to do. But since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. A certain Ananias, a man who was devout by the standard of the law and well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing near said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very time, I looked up at him and he said, the God of our fathers has appointed you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear an utterance from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to all men of what you have seen and heard. Now, why do you delay? Get up and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. It happened when I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple that I fell into a trance. And I saw him saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves understand that in one synagogue after another, I used to imprison and beat those who believed in you. 
And when the blood of your witness Stephen was being shed, I also was standing by approving and watching out for the coats of those who were slaying him. And he said to me, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Now it says in verse 22, they listened to him up to that point, that statement, and then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth. He should not be allowed to live. It's right after he said, God has sent me to the Gentiles. And the Jews didn't like that. Okay, let's just ask God's help. Lord, would you please shed light upon your word? Lord, this book is 2,000 years old. The writings are ancient, but yet they carry significant spiritual meaning for our lives today. Let us draw practical lessons out that would help us in our Christian life today. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, folks, if I were to ask you this morning, what is the scariest task that God has given us to do as Christians? What would you answer? The thing that you're most terrified of doing that God wants you to do. Well, for me, going out and speaking. Exactly. You, you, you hit the nail on the head right there, Josie. <laughs> I think that all of us can relate to that. He's commanded us to preach the gospel to all creation, to make disciples of all the nations, and that requires us to get out of our comfort zone and talk to people about Jesus. And we feel intimidated by that, don't you? It could be a scary thought that, wow, I'm supposed to be talking to people about the Lord. But that is absolutely true. That is God's call on our life as Christians. Um, but I will say this, one of the easiest and most natural ways of sharing our faith is simply to share your testimony with somebody. We find Paul doing that in this circumstance here in the book of Acts. He shares his testimony with these, this Jewish mob that... Just a moment before, we're trying to kill him. He, he begs the uh, opportunity to speak to this Jewish mob. And when the commander gives him that opportunity, he doesn't preach the gospel. He starts to share about himself and his life and what God had done in his life to save him. So basically, folks, your testimony is your story. And if you're a Christian, you have one. Now, if you're not a Christian yet, you don't have a testimony yet. You have to be converted. But if God has converted you, you have a testimony. And your, your testimony is comprised of three things. Number one, what your past was like before you met Christ. Number two, how Jesus saved you. Number three, what happened since he saved you. So it's pretty simple. Before Christ, how Christ saved you, and after Christ saved you. Okay, so that's our testimony. That's what Paul is sharing here with this Jewish mob. And I want to encourage you to think about your testimony and be prepared to share your testimony because that can be one of the easiest ways that you have of sharing your faith with somebody else. And we're going to look at some practical lessons of how Paul was sharing his faith and how we can derive those lessons for our, ourselves today. So there's three basic principles. I'm not going to go real deep into this this morning, but I just want you to see three basic practical principles for sharing your faith with other people. And we see this from Paul's life here. Number one, we need to earnestly desire their salvation. So it's got to come from our heart where we have a desire, an earnest desire. Number two, we need to look for common ground to build bridges with the person that we're trying to reach for Christ. And number three, we need to point them away from religion and ritual 
to a saving relationship to Jesus Christ. Okay, so those are the three things I'm seeing here from this passage. So the first one is, we need to earnestly desire the salvation of the lost. And you say, well, Brian, where are you getting that? I'm getting that starting in verse 37. This Jewish mob was trying to kill the Apostle Paul. We, if you wanted to back up and read from verse 27 to 37, you'll see the story there. They were so angry at him because they thought that he brought Trophimus, who was a Gentile, into the Jewish temple. And that was a capital offense. You could, be, you could be executed if you were to bring a Gentile into a Jewish temple. And they thought Paul had done that. Now he hadn't done that. He actually did not bring Trophimus into the temple. But they were assuming that he did. And that's why they were beating him up and trying to kill him before the commander rescued him out of their hands. Now, notice <laughs> the commander rescues Paul from these people that are trying to kill him. And notice what Paul wants to do as soon as he's rescued. Verse 37, as Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the commander, may I say something to you? And he said, do you know Greek? Interestingly, do you know Greek? Then you're not the Egyptian. So he, he was, had him confused with some other guy. But Paul says in verse 39, I'm a Jew of Tarsus and Cilicia, a city of no insignificant, I'm a citizen of no insignificant city. He says, I beg you, Allow me to speak to the people. I beg you. Now, what does Paul want to say when he speaks to the people? Well, we find out in chapter 22. He wants to tell them what God had done in his life. How, God had, how Jesus Christ had saved him from sin and set him apart to be an apostle to the Gentiles. Now, why would Paul, who had nearly just lost his life by an angry mob trying to kill him, and then he's been rescued, why would he turn right around and beg the guy that rescued him to give him a chance to speak to the people about Christ? I mean, if that was one of us, we'd probably want to get out of there as fast as we could because it's a, that's a traumatic experience. Just let me out of here. I don't, I don't want to be here anymore. But Paul says, no, before I go, please give me a chance to speak to the people. I think the answer comes to us from Romans chapter 9 verses 1 to 3. Remember, Paul is an apostle to the Gentiles. He's already been on three missionary journeys. Wherever he goes, yes, he does speak to some of the Jews. He goes to the synagogue. But his main goal, God had called him to reach the Gentile world for Christ. But Paul loves the Jewish people because Paul's a Jew himself. He shares much in common with other Jewish people. And he wants the Jews to be saved. Now, notice what we find here in Romans 9, verse 1. He says, I'm telling the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. Why did Paul have this great sorrow in his heart and unceasing grief in his heart? He's going to tell us in verse 3, but it was because the Jewish people were not coming to Christ. Most of them were rejecting him as the Messiah. And he says in verse 3, For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites. In other words, I could wish that I was separated from Jesus Christ and accursed, if only my brethren, according to the flesh, the Jewish people, would be saved. 
I think, I mean, that sounds so incredible to our ears. I think that's why he tells us, wait a minute, I'm not lying here. My conscience testifies in the Holy Spirit. I'm telling you the truth. And whether, whether you believe me or not, I'm not lying. Now he says, I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ, because it was not possible for, for Paul to be separated from Christ. He just got done telling us at the last of Romans chapter 8, that there's nothing that can separate the believer from Jesus Christ and his love. So it's not possible, but if it were possible, Paul's saying, I would be willing to be separated from Jesus Christ. What he's saying is, I'd be willing to go to hell if it would mean the Jewish people would be saved. Now, I, I can't imagine that. Can you? <laughs> can you imagine someone being willing to be eternally damned? If other people might know the Lord Jesus, I mean, it's an amazing, amazing thought. But what that tells you is Paul had such a desire for the salvation of the Jewish people, such a strong desire in his heart, and I think that's why. He says, I beg you, let me speak to this mob. He'd been speaking to Gentiles, and now he's got all of these Jewish people in one place at one time, and this is his chance to be able to speak to his countrymen that he loved. He says, I beg you, give me a chance to speak to them. We also find in Romans 10, verse 1, Paul says, Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them, that is Israel, is for their salvation. So again, he, he tells us what's going on in his heart. It was his heart's desire and his prayer to God for the salvation of the Jewish people. Okay, so when we go back to the book of Acts, I believe that's why Paul is wanting to speak to the people. And I have a lot of admiration for Paul. I, I don't think that I would have the same kind of zeal for lost people if I was in his position as he did, apart from a, a mighty moving of the Holy Spirit on my life at that point. Uh, so let me just ask you, can you relate to Paul? Do you have a strong desire in your heart for the salvation of other people that you know? Other people you can relate to, like Paul related to the Jewish people. Are there people in your life that you're burdened for their salvation? I mean, this, this should be something that the Holy Spirit is doing in our hearts. Do we have family members that don't know Christ? Do you have a burden from the Holy Spirit that they would be saved? Do you have friends, people maybe that you work with, people that maybe you go to school with them, maybe they're neighbors that you've gotten to know? This is what it means to be a Christian, is, is to have a heart not only for other Christians, but also for lost people. Charles Spurgeon, in one of his sermons, once put it this way. He says, if sinners will be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our bodies. And if they will perish, let them perish with our arms about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, at least let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions. And let not one of them go there unwarned and unprayed for. So if people are going to go to hell, let's at least make it not our fault. That we, we were so negligent that we never even opened our mouth to talk to them. So the very first thing that needs to be part of our lives as Christians is a desire for the salvation of other people. And if you find, hey, I, I really don't have that, then that's something for us to talk to the Lord about. Because we, we should. We should have a desire for the salvation of the lost around us. Okay, 
Second principle I see here in Paul's life is that we need to look for common ground with the people that we want to reach for Christ. Notice how he masterfully builds bridges between himself and these angry Jews that are clamoring for his life. He's, he's finding a way to relate to them and build credibility with them. So what he does is he emphasizes their common spiritual heritage, their Jewishness that they have in common. Notice how he begins in chapter 22 verse 1. He says, brethren and fathers, brethren and fathers, he doesn't say, you mob of blaspheming religious infidels. <laughs> He's very courteous to them. I mean, I mean, he could have. These guys are trying to kill him, but he turns right around and he respectfully addresses them. Brethren and fathers. In verse 2, he says, in the Hebrew dialect. Now that's interesting because we just learned from chapter 21 that he could speak Greek. But instead of speaking Greek which they could probably understand because it was the common language of the Roman Empire. Instead of doing that, he addresses them in their common Jewish language, which was Hebrew. Showing, he's again building more bridges. I'm one of you. We both speak the same native tongue. And then in verse 3, he says, I am a Jew, like you are. We share the same spiritual heritage. We believe in the same law. We were raised to believe in the coming of a Messiah. We share all of the same scriptures in common. He says, I was born in Tarsus of Cilicia. Now Tarsus was a city known for its great learning. And so Paul is saying, I'm, I'm not a stupid country bumpkin. <laughs> I'm enlightened and cultured as you are. And then he says, I was brought up in this city. Well, what city was Paul in when this is happening in Acts 22? This is Jerusalem. That's where the temple is. Paul says, I was born in Tarsus, but I was brought up in Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the capital, the, the religious capital of the Jewish people. And he says, I was educated under Gamaliel. Gamaliel was probably the chief religious teacher amongst the Jewish people. And Paul was a disciple of Gamaliel. And then he says, strictly according to the law of our fathers. So Paul knew the law, and Paul had sought to be obedient to the law. We find from Philippians chapter 3 that he says, touching the law, I was found blameless. So he was extremely committed to the law of God, the scriptures of God. He could relate to the people that he was talking to. And then he says, being zealous for God just as you all are today. I'm just like you. We're all zealous for God. Zealous for Jehovah. And then he says in verse 4, I persecuted this way to the death. So let me demonstrate my zeal for God. My zeal for God is shown because I persecuted Christians who differed from the Jewish faith I was brought up in. Paul bound and put both men and women in prison. And in verse 5, he says, As also the high priest and all the council of the elders can testify. If you doubt my word, just go ask the high priest. Go ask the members of the Sanhedrin. They're still alive and they can verify my words. Do you see how he's starting to build bridges to show some commonness with the people that he's talking to? And then he says, I also received letters to the brethren and started off for Damascus in order to bring even those who were there to Jerusalem as prisoners to be punished. 
So my zeal didn't start and stop in Jerusalem alone. <laughs> After I had already had all of the Christians I could find in Jerusalem arrested, then I started going to outlying cities like Damascus, and I was trying to have them arrested and brought to Jerusalem to be punished. So I was just like you. I was raised a Jew like you. I was zealous for the law like you. And I wanted to stamp out Christianity just like you would like to have it stamped out. So Paul knew it was important to establish some common ground with the people he was trying to reach. And I just think that's a very practical principle for us. If there are people in your life that the Lord wants you to reach out to with the gospel, see if you can build some bridges, some common ground with that individual. Paul did it by establishing their common spiritual heritage, but how can we do it? Well, here's some ideas for you. Maybe it's by focusing on the fact that both of you happen to be musicians. That can be some common ground that you can start with. Or both of you happen to be widows. You have that in common. Or maybe you're both stay-at-home moms. Or maybe you're of the same nationality. Or maybe you like the same football team. You like the 49ers. You have that in common. Or maybe you both like to go fishing. Or you, you're both unemployed. Or I mean, you can fill in the gap here. But there's all kinds of ways that we can build common ground with other people. And if you can't think of anything else, you can always share that you're both sinners in need of a Savior. Because that's common to everybody. So, if there's someone that you want to reach with the gospel and that guy, he's into fishing and you like to fish, say, hey, why don't we go fishing together and pray that God would make it possible that on that trip, you would be able to share with him something about maybe your testimony or something about what Christ has done in your life. Um, you both have small children. Maybe you'd get into one of those neighborhood groups of, of moms with small children. In our neighborhood, they, they have groups like that and they go for walks together. Um, you both love football, plan to go to see a 49ers game together. You see what I mean? You're, you're looking for <laughs> Raiders, okay. <laughs> Whatever it happens to be. I'm into baseball, so I'd be the Giants for me. <laughs> okay, so that's the second principle. It starts off with a, a desire in your heart to see them saved. It moves into looking for ways we can build bridges and common ground with a person that doesn't know Christ yet. And then thirdly, I see what Paul does here is that he points them away from religion to a saving relationship to Jesus Christ. In chapter 2, verses 3 to 5, Paul lays out just how religious he was. He tells them that he was a Jew. He grew up in the holy city of Jerusalem. He was educated by the greatest Jewish teacher of the day, which was Gamaliel. He lived strictly according to God's law. And he was so zealous for God that he persecuted those who disagreed with his religious views, even to foreign cities and even unto death. Now, would you say that Paul was a religious person? I would say he was a very religious person. I would even call him super religious. Super religious. Did all of Paul's religion bring him into a saving relationship to God? No, it didn't. He was not saved. In fact, it was just the exact opposite. In verse 7, we find that he was actually persecuting Jesus Christ. In chapter 22, verse 14, 
It says, and, and he said, the God of our fathers has appointed you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear an utterance from his mouth. So if, if the God of Paul's fathers had appointed Paul to know his will, that means that Paul did not know his will prior to that happening. That means that when Paul was a very religious Jew, he did not know the will of God, although he probably thought he did, but yet he lacked knowledge of the will of God. And in verse 16, when Ananias is talking to Paul, he says, now why do you delay? Get up and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. So evidently Paul's sins were not washed away before this moment, even though he was super religious, even though he was zealous according to the law, even though he was persecuting Christians, he was still in his sins. And if he had died in his sins, he would have ended up in hell. So arise, be baptized, wash away your sins, calling on his name. Now let's talk about another example of religion and its inability to save. In Jesus' own day, who were the people that he had the most trouble with? It was the religious people of his day. The common person loved Jesus. <laughs> the common person would hear him gladly. It was the religious people who were always at his throat, arguing with him, persecuting him, trying to get him to stop. And it reminds me of Matthew chapter 23, because in this chapter, Jesus is, he's speaking to the scribes and the Pharisees in his own day. Seven times in that one chapter, he calls them hypocrites. Eight times he says, woe to you. And that word woe means intense grief or misery. And it was an, actually an expression of doom. Woe to you, doom be upon you. So, the Pharisees and the scribes of Jesus' day were the super religious people, extremely devoted to the law. Their whole life was trying to understand and obey the law of God. And Jesus said they were hypocrites and they were doomed unless they repented. In Matthew 23, verse 14, Jesus said they would receive greater condemnation. In Matthew 23, 15, he calls them sons of hell. In Matthew 23, 17, he calls them fools and blind men. In Matthew 23, 27, he calls them whitewashed tombs that appear beautiful on the outside, but inside are full of dead men's bones. And there's a great, of course, there's a great stench whenever you have a dead body. He says, that's what you're like. You look good on the outside. You're filthy and horrible on the inside. And in Matthew 23, 33, he calls them serpents and asks them, how will you escape the sentence of hell? In other words, they were under that sentence, even though they were religious and were observing their rituals and obeying their religious laws. And clearly, just because these men were religious, it didn't mean that they were saved. Jesus said they weren't. They were headed to eternal damnation unless they had repent of their sins and come into a vital saving relationship with Jehovah let's think about another man Nicodemus in John chapter 3 Nicodemus was a Jew he was a leader of the Jews and most commentators believe that means that he was part of the Sanhedrin which is a 70 member ruling body over the Jewish people Jesus told this religious Pharisee who was a leader amongst the Jews that he must be born again if he would see or enter the kingdom of God. 
So do you start to see the picture that religion in and of itself and devotion to a religion is not enough to save you? You need something more. You need to be brought into a vital union to Jesus Christ through faith in Him. So what does all that have on sharing our faith? I think it's, it's just this. Don't ever assume the person you're witnessing to is saved because they're religious. Don't make that assumption. They may go to church. Well, let's just start off with non-Christian religions. Here, where we live, I, I often will meet Hindus and Muslims, even in my own neighborhood. There's lots of people like that. And it's becoming more and more common here in the U.S., don't, don't assume that a Hindu or a Muslim or a Buddhist or a Jew is saved simply because they're a religious person and they're sincere. They're sincerely devoted to their particular religion. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. And Paul would say, the, or Peter would say the same thing in Acts 4.12. There's no other name under heaven by which we must be saved in the name of Jesus Christ. So unless a person has come into a union to Jesus Christ, they can't be saved. So a Muslim, unless he repents and follows Christ, cannot be saved. I know that you probably bristle at me saying something like that. But I, I believe that's God's truth in his word. A Jew, unless that Jew believes that Christ is Messiah, Savior, and Lord, cannot be saved. A Hindu cannot be saved unless they renounce all of their other gods and follow Jesus Christ as their Lord and their God. So, but not only that, but professing Christians may also be very religious, but not saved. And I meet them all the time. People, you know, you try to sit down and, and witness with them and you, you, oh yeah, I believe in God. I believe in heaven. I believe in hell. I believe in Jesus. Well, to an extent, but you start pressing them about what that means for them, and it's, it's the outward show of religion. I go to church. But they've never come to know him. They don't have a saving relationship to Christ. Christ has not become their life, if you know what I mean by that. If you're converted, you know what I mean by Christ becomes our life. He's the one that we center our life in. So we need to be careful that we don't assume that religious people are saved. It reminds me of something that Jesus taught in Luke chapter 13. Let's, I'm going to go there for just a minute and show you this. In Luke chapter 13, somebody came up to Jesus and said, are there, uh, are there many that are going to be saved? No, he says, are there just a few who are being saved? And Jesus doesn't say yes or no. Jesus says, you, don't worry about how many, you strive to enter through the narrow door. This is that word strive. That word means to labor, to work, to, to exert yourself, to make sure that you've entered the narrow door. Make sure that you're not left outside that narrow, and notice it's a narrow door, because only those people who believe in Jesus Christ enter so it's narrow. Just because you believe in Muhammad doesn't mean that you're in the door. Just because you are religious and attend church somewhere doesn't mean you're in the door. Strive to enter through the narrow door. And he says, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Once the head of the house gets up and shuts the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock on the door saying, Lord, open up to us. He will answer and say to you, I do not know where you are from. Mm. 
then you will begin to say, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute here. We ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. In other words, when you were ministering on earth, we heard you teach. And, and we ate and drank in your presence. We were right there, Lord. We, we were with you. How can you deny me? Heaven, how can you shut me out? And Jesus says, in verse 27, he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you are from. Depart from me, all you evildoers. What is an unsaved person characterized by? <clears throat> the Bible says he's characterized by being an evildoer. And someone who knows God is characterized by a life of holiness, a pursuit of holiness. Hebrews says, pursue holiness without which no man will see the Lord. If you are a genuinely saved person, you are bent in the direction of righteousness. Christ is your righteousness, and you're seeking to be like Jesus. Don't, don't say you're a Christian unless that is the bent of your life. Because when God saves you, he gives you a heart that longs for that. In fact, a genuine Christian, if he, could, if he could decide right now, snap his fingers and say, I'm never going to sin again, he would do it in an instant. Because that's what he wants. He wants to be righteous. He wants to be holy. The Spirit of God inside of him is moving him in that direction. So Paul's testimony as he points his hearers away from religion and his whole deal here in Acts 22, it's all about what Jesus had done to make him a brand new person. It's all how Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus in this white blinding light and subdued his will and then washed away his sins through conversion and then gave him this commission to go out and spread the gospel to the Gentiles. Paul's testimony is full of Christ and that's what I want to encourage you to make your testimony full of. If it's all about you, don't, don't be surprised if nobody gets saved. <laughs> But if your testimony is all about Christ, then you can expect good things to happen because Jesus is the one who does the saving, not us. It's not me and my example that does anything. It's the Lord, the Lord God. And we need to be pointing people to him and trying to help people come to meet him face to face. So let's not go on and on about our church when we talk to people or our religious practices or our, in a house church, there's not a whole lot we can brag about, but, <laughs> you know, the idea is not, it's not about us. It's about Jesus. And if we can bring people into a true saving relationship of faith in Jesus Christ, we've done our job. That's what God's called us to do. The Bible says it's by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not as a result of works that no one may boast. So religion is bankrupt as a savior. And no one who trusts in their religion will be in heaven. If you're trusting in your religion, I'd say there's no hope. There's no hope in that. Because your religion can't save you. Christ can. Do you have a relationship to Jesus Christ? Let me just ask you that. Be honest in your heart today. Do you have a saving relationship to Jesus Christ? Is that true? Have you been converted by the Spirit of God? Have you experienced a change? That's what converted means. Have you been changed by the power of God to where you are a new creature in Jesus? We sang about that this morning. 
that we're new creatures in Christ. If you have, then God may, he's going to want to use you to help other people come to know him as well. So, my conclusion is simply to reiterate what we see here in Paul's life. He had this burning desire for the salvation of the Jews. Intensify your desire for the lost. Let it burn brighter and brighter in your heart. Number two, he learned to build bridges and find common ground with people that didn't yet know the Lord. I think so that they would at least have an open ear to hear what he was going to say to them. He was building credibility. And then thirdly, we need to not assume that religious people that we meet are already saved. We need to bring them the gospel. We need to point them to Jesus Christ. Jesus. 